0: This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com
1: for more shows like this one. As long as there's been music, there's been music criticism. Before the internet, music criticism was especially important for those of us who devoured the NME, Melody Maker, Spin, or Rolling Stone to find out what the critics thought of a new album. But with the advent of the internet and the overwhelming number of music blogs that have popped up in the last 10 years... Do critics still have the same importance? Welcome to the Future of What? I'm your host, Portia Saban, president of the independent record label, Kale Rockstars. Support for the Future of What? comes from MerchTable. Since 2002, MerchTable has operated and managed online stores for hundreds of successful musicians, record labels, comedians, artists, and small businesses. Big or small, set up shop today by visiting MerchTable.com. Today we talk to music critics about what they do, its relevance, and the challenges of doing this job at this moment in history. It's all coming up on the Future of What.
2: Can I have a taste of your ice cream? Can I lift the crumbs from your table? Can I interfere in your crisis? No, mind your own
1: business. You're listening to the Future of What. We're talking to Greg Cott and Jim DeRogatis of Sound Opinions. Guys, welcome to The Future of What?
3: Thank you. Happy to be here. Pleasure to be here.
1: Yay. So, I don't know how familiar you are with my program, but I started this podcast a couple years ago because I was tired of the horrible stereotypes about the music business, just, you know, people getting into the music business just to steal money from artists, basically. (laughs) (laughs) No! Does that really exist? So I was like, you know, I work with thousands of people in this business whose whole job is just to create and sustain careers for artists, you know, help artists become career musicians. And, you know, I would say that music critics are very important in that ecosystem. And so this week we're doing an episode talking to music critics about what they do and why they do it and how they're relevant these days, which, you know, is probably a a topic for hours of debate. (laughs) (laughs)
4: <laughs> How long is the podcast? Exactly.
1: <laughs> so tell me, I mean, you guys have been doing this for a long time, like a consistently long time. You guys have been in rock criticism. You've been, you know, crazy music fans, just like the rest of us. How do you feel about the state of music criticism just right now in 2017?
3: Well, it's changed a lot, hasn't it? I remember, you know, as a kid growing up, you know, you were, there was probably a dozen critics that were kind of national names and, you 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 read them pretty religiously, or at least I did, if you were interested in that sort of thing. If you're interested in music, if you're interested in writing, chances are you read Chris Gow and Real Marcus and Dave Marsh and Ellen Willis, who was a big favorite of mine. I grew up reading uh, Lynn Van Matry who was one of the pioneering first female critics you know, in America. She was the first music critic at the Chicago Tribune, a job that she held down until the late 80s, from the late 60s to the late 80s, and then I took over so now you 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 name a band and there's probably a critic to go with it now you know it's it's there's probably almost as many critics or people writing about music as there are bands out there and that's that's saying a lot so it's become more ubiquitous and you know there it's almost like a dime a dozen kind of industry right now everybody tries their hand at it i think what's different is that you're not seeing the career sort of being forged in music criticism the way you would have in the sixties, seventies, eighties, even nineties, where, where people were doing this for a lengthy period of time and, and establishing a name and a reputation, you know, for better or worse, not necessarily a great reputation, but people knew who they were. And I'd say it's a lot tougher now to name the top critics from a new generation of writers simply because the exposure is so diffuse right now.
4: Yeah. We're in the era of branding. People know about pitchfork, but how many pitchfork writers can they name stuff like that? You know, I don't think this is a bad thing, the fact that people are able to get their opinions out there, you know, any more than I think it's a bad thing that music distribution has become so much easier thanks to the net. If we leave aside the question of commerce, and I'm slightly to the left of Noam Chomsky, I think if you work (laughs) hard and do something well, you should get paid for it. You know, look, if you're going into writing of any kind, but especially criticism, you're never going to get paid as well as, you know, working at the commodities exchange. And you know that, and you accept that just like being an indie musician, you know, so you're not in it to get rich, but I think you should be paid for your efforts. But I think that the problem with our world today, with our culture is not that there is too much intelligent conversation about art. How could it possibly be? There's a lot of opinion. We are awash in more opinion than at any point in human history because the net has made communications. So, you know, uh, easy, readily accessible. And everybody, you know what they say about opinions, you know, everybody's got one just Just like like. they have a (laughs) Right, you know, I mean, I teach reviewing the arts at Columbia College, and these are smart art students, filmmakers, fashion designers, video game designers, uh, and even a few errant stray journalists. You know, how, how can there possibly be too much passionate, smart conversation about the art, but there, there, there's more opinion than ever and less criticism people spouting off, you know, you go to Yelp and there's a review of the pizza place down the block and 90% of the reviews are the pizza at this place sucks, right? Well, that's not a review. The review is the pizza at this place is overpriced the crust is soggy. There's not enough cheese. I mean, you, know, you know, I mean, back up your opinion. And even I think some of the, the critical organs are doing this less and less and, and devaluing the quality of the writing. But on the other hand, you know, sitting in the suburbs right now is some passionate 16 year old girl who is going to rave about the regrets album pro or con and, and write this from the heart review of it. And and that's wonderful. And she can potentially reach as many readers as John Perella's in the New York Times. And that cannot possibly be a bad thing.
1: It's it's so, I have so many directions I want to go on this with you guys. I, I feel like, you know, you mentioned Pitchfork and Pitchfork is fascinating because really there was a time when a good review in Pitchfork by whomever, you know, question mark writer, you know, if you got a 9.0 in Pitchfork, you were going to sell some records. And the funny part on my end is that that's not actually the case anymore. That seems to have diffused. That's not as as strong a factor in in album sales. And that could, of course, be because of streaming, because of, you know, whatever technological advances or just the culture. But it, you're right that, that it wasn't so important who was writing. What do you think about, I mean, you know, publishing is arguably one of two other industries, you know, the three top industries that bid it when the Internet happened. You know, music publishing and porn just lost all their, <laughs> yeah. nobody pays for any of, <laughs> that, pays for any anymore. of that anymore. Yeah. yeah, But, but you know, everything's kind of regrouped a little. See, Greg
4: thinks, Greg thinks that I'm the one who I'm the only one who ever brings up porn and sex when we talk about the internet, you know, and, but, but it's true. I mean, look, look at that, you know,
3: no, it's just the enthusiasm model. with which you consistently bring it up that the me pause. That's that's the only thing I'm questioning.
4: Now, see, what no, I it, always say is that as we're moving to a virtual world, there are still some experiences that that are more authentic, if we use that vilified word in the academy, than ever. Right? Why are so many people excited about fine dining right now? Because in the kitchen. Someone has their hands in that food that they are bringing out to you that you eat. And I think that music is still that same way. To be in a room with a band playing is an experience that will never be duplicated by consuming music on the web you know, any more than, yes, can you have online sex with a partner? Yes, you can. It ain't the same as being in the same place at the same time as that person.
3: But I, but, and I also think that Pitchfork, you know, I mean, the idea that a good review or a great rave review equated to a sale. I mean, there was a blip of a period there where they helped break a band, say, quote unquote, like Arcade Fire. And, you know, they raved about that first record and that became a huge indie hit and it actually sold quite a few copies more than a typical independent label release would have. Well, it was a very good record. And it was a good record. And they helped, and, and then he certainly helped get, get the word out. But I would say the notion that criticism has helped artists sell records is really, is really not true. I, I think there's, there's certainly an element of exposure there that a, a critic can provide to a record that may not have been noticed otherwise. But I, I don't think critics have ever really been a driver of sales. You know, you know, there's been countless bands that have been lauded up and down by critics that never sold in any substantial numbers. Velvet Underground,
4: Ramones, sure.
3: But I think what critics have done, uh, the good critics anyway, have have created a conversation around art and artists and and bands that has led to sort of an an environment where bands could thrive. You know, a band like the Velvet Underground was a critic's favorite for a long time and nobody else cared. But over time, the Velvet Underground's reputation grew and grew, uh, not to the point where they're selling as many records as the Beatles once did, but they're certainly you know, a, a name that uh, everybody knows and understands what, they, what their music represented and the, and the artists who were in that band who have had gone on to solo careers, John Cale, Lou Reed, whatever, you know, are, are respected artists who have had successful careers. So, you know, uh, critics do play a role in this dialogue, this conversation around music. And I think that's probably the, the key. It's not so much the consumer guide concept, thumbs up, thumbs down, go buy this, don't, don't buy it. It's more about this cultural conversation that I think is, is, is critical to have around any art that is created. Movies, you know, theater, books, music. It, it, that, that's an important conversation, and it's one of the reasons we're on this planet, is to enjoy art, understand it, be motivated by it. Critics can foster that kind of conversation.
1: Well, just to be the devil's advocate, you guys, because I know you hate that. <laughs> sure. I'm going to—what about the, the notion? I mean, I, I deal with this a lot in the music business, and we talk about it all the time. What about the notion that the vast majority of people actually just don't like music? And that's just the truth. Like, they just don't care. You know, there's a small percentage of people like us who are crazy about music and who want to know that the drummer who played on this album also played in this other album by this band, that you know, six years ago that I also loved, etc., etc. But the the vast majority of people just really don't care. And in fact, not only do they not care, but they're only going to be interested in music for a certain number of years, let's say when they're in college and they're in their frat house and they're all listening to Fetty Wap or whatever together. And that when they look back, they're going to feel fond about that, you know, in their forties and they'll put on Fetty Wap and be like, I remember the good old days.
2: Man. <laughs> Those you were know?
4: the good old days but of like Fetty Wap. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? It's well, like, it, it's like, what do we yeah. do in that? Like, are we basically all is my job and your job? Or are we just catering to this pampered elite of people who actually give a crap about music?
4: Well, look, I think Portia, <laughs> the, the uh, if we step back, and say, you know, how many people care about visual art or photography or dance or theater or movies, right? Uh, How many people really care about anything, even eating? Okay. You know, there are innumerable great mom and pop burger joints, right? And people go to McDonald's because it's, it's there and it's ubiquitous and it's shoved down their throat. If I can wax grand historical and philosophical for you, there's a notion that begins with Nietzsche, who, of course, is vilified because he was adopted by the Nazis. But fascinatingly, W.E.B. Dubois in the Reconstruction period post-Civil War also picks up this idea, and it's called the Talented Tenth. One out of ten people you engage with in life is truly alive. They are interested in philosophy and religion and sex and art and music and reading and literature, right? now this, you know, the Nazis corrupt this, right? And say, put the other nine to death, right? But that's not what Nietzsche was saying. And certainly not not what they were saying in in Reconstruction when the African, the notion that the the educated African-American needs to pick up the people who've been enslaved and newly freed, right? And so... You know, middle ages, you know, nine out of 10 peasants are happy to come home, put their feet up after a long day of farming potatoes and sit in front of the fire. Right. And nine out of 10 people today are going to come home and and watch uh, entertainment TV tonight, which I would include the president's address to Congress. Right. (laughs) And they don't really care. Right. But this is throughout history. Right. And this is this is to say one thing the critic does. And by that, I would include you. You're someone who's passionate and talks intelligently about music on your podcast in your life. Right. One of the things that, 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 that we do as fans, uh, lovers of art, uh, as critics, all of those, I think, are synonymous is say to people, your life will be better if you listen to savages. Listen to it now. <laughs> right. You know, and, and that's that's what we're doing. You know, and I, I don't, that makes it sound more noble than it is, you know, putting a, a buy it, try it, or trash it on a record, you know, as we do on the show or, you know, a 9.6 on the scale or whatever the freak pitchfork wants to do. <laughs> but I mean, that's essentially what we're doing. We're, you know, like life is worth living because of these things. And it's, it, that's true of, I th- I think whatever art form you're critiquing.
1: Well, I agree with you because this is my job and because I do believe, you know, that when we put out a record that I think is wonderful art, that even if only a thousand people also love it, that it was worth it.
4: Those are the thousand people you'd want to be marooned on a desert island with.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And so.
4: Even if they bought it and hated it, (laughs) because at least they bought it and thought about it.
1: Right. Right. Exactly. And that's. The the critic's not trying to change
4: someone's taste. The critic is trying to get them to examine the world the way they see it. And then I want to consider the world the way they see it, vice versa. It's a conversation. Greg used that word. Obviously we've devoted our lives. I mean, he's always wrong. My opinion is better. (laughs) He will say the same about me. Okay. But really what we've based the, the whole sound opinions notion on and our lives on is talking about the music. I want to know how he hears something he wants to know how I do. And that's the best way to appreciate art without the appreciator of art, right? You know, so a musician makes some masterpiece, a brilliant painting, a wonderful novel, or, you know, the album that will blow us all away. If nobody's heard it, it's only half the act completed.
3: Right. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the key thing. The, a great, great piece of music needs a great listener. And I've heard that from musicians. I mean, they they, they kind of acknowledge that it's not just about what's being created, but it's being able to create something and know that somebody out there is going to get it, or at least understand it or engage with it on a level as impassioned and enlightened as, as they hopefully went into making it. So it it takes two, you know, and listener and creator, I think where, where things get mucked up is, 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 is the person in the middle, the middleman who wants to control that the way that music is accessed, the way it's heard, the way it's, uh, even made sometimes, but the beauty of the internet is that it has enabled this incredible transaction to take place directly from the artist to the listener, and I don't look down on people who are are just casual listeners, I think that's what you were sort of getting at, Portia, is a little bit, that there's some people for whom music is just sort of around, but I think if you took music out of everyone's life, they would notice it, and they would miss it, and they may not necessarily be as engaged as the most passionate listeners, but it is a part of their life and I'm fascinated by the way they engage with music at all levels. You know, there's, there's a way a six year old engages with with music that's fascinating and there's a way a 40 year old person who has sort of lost touch with, you know, the music of their youth and, and has not heard a piece of new music in 15 years engages with it. And then there's that 19 year old kid in their dorm room who's downloading or streaming Every new band that comes down the pike and can name drop all day long. And I, Portia, this is a great conversation because it just opens up so many rabbit holes that you could climb down and spend three hours talking (laughs) about. But this whole notion of the hot take has been really a big part of it. And I think one of the reasons that criticism has sort of been devalued is that we're living in a hot take culture. Like if you don't have something instant to say about something that's just come out or, or, or just gone public then your opinion isn't valid anymore. And a lot of times those hot take criticisms are incredibly shallow and incredibly facile. And it's not leading to any kind of constructive dialogue anymore. I think, I I think one of the beauties of great criticism, you know, again, I go back to this idea of a really elevated conversation about something that's really important to us as human beings. And the hot take just completely pulls the rug out from under that and turns it into this very, shallow kind of surface conversation that's that ends up with just a bunch of people yelling at each other
1: yeah and i all we have to do to that is just turn on any media source at all (laughs) just Mm -hmm. that's what's going on literally well you guys i could talk to you for hours but i don't want to do that to you or anyone else (laughs) so (laughs) greg and jim thank you so much for being with us today on the future of what it was such a pleasure
3: likewise thank you so much for having us absolutely anytime
1: was Advice on Bioluminescent Bears by Boats. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Julianne escobedo Shepherd. Julianne, welcome to The Future of What.
0: Hello, thank you for having me. I'm excited.
1: Yeah, me too. To talk to you. I've read your stuff for so long now that in so many magazines and publications, it's like I'm talking to a music critic superstar. Oh, my
0: God. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up on Kill Stars, so... <laughs> Yay. Meeting of the Minds, <laughs> Yay. I
1: love it. So we asked you here today because we are interested in talking about music criticism in 2017 because it really seems like, I mean, you and I are kind of of an age and we came up when stuff like, remember when Pitchfork came online and all of a sudden, Mm -hmm. these reviews were making a huge difference in people's sales. Like you could release a record and it got a 9.0 on Pitchfork and you sold like 40,000 copies of that record. I mean, it was significant. Mm -hmm. And now I'm just wondering, it sort of feels like things have changed. What do you think?
2: Oh, yeah. (laughs) I
0: don't know if Pitchfork reviews, bless them, really affect sales that much anymore. (laughs) Right. You know, it's interesting because coming from a critical perspective, obviously, you know, this is what I do and what I love to read. But you know, it sort of forces you to reevaluate because obviously, everyone's a critic now. I mean, everyone already was, but <laughs> everyone's a critic with a platform. Right. And I would say that fan bases influence, you know, like fan Twitter accounts and fan Tumblr is probably influence sales more than any sort of like glowing review in any publication. And so you have to get creative with it and also understand that the job of the critic isn't to promote sales, it's to evaluate art and hopefully contextualize it to
1: speak to its broader impact. Absolutely. And, you know, because I just feel like everyone's like, oh, the internet, you know, everyone, when I meet people who are not in the music industry, they're like, oh, the internet must have made your job so much better because... Now the music is everywhere and everyone can have, you know, put their music on the internet. And I'm like, yeah, and it basically created this crazy situation where you put your record out and it's like dropping a pebble into the ocean, right? Because there's just Mm -hmm. so much out there. And so, you know, people who say to me stuff like, you know, nobody needs a label anymore. I'm like, well, actually, I don't think that's true because one of the things labels do is provide a filter. And I think people need right. filters more than ever now with the internet, with the way it is.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I also think that the same goes for criticism. I think that potentially, like, the Pitchfork will publish the best writers, you know, or the, you'll establish a brand under the umbrella of Pitchfork or Stereogum or whatever. And so ideally it's that. But at the same time, you know, and I'm sure it's this way with musicians it's really made it less of a lucrative thing so the people who do it really well even some people who do it really well can't afford to do it as a job so that sort of siphoned it through
1: if that makes sense absolutely yeah i mean it's interesting to see how sort of it's worked for both sides right it's it's more difficult nowadays mm-hmm. for artists to make a living but it's also obviously more difficult for music critics to make a living because there's so much out there i think there's so much there's so much bandwidth, you know, mm-hmm. there's blogs and podcasts and stuff happening constantly. So on one level, there's sort of more opportunity, but then also a little bit less, because I think there's less money in the pool, mm-hmm. you know, so to have a job where you can actually eat right. is <laughs> the challenge.
0: Yeah, the money, it's spread so thin. And, you know, I think a lot of publications, none of those that I mentioned, but a lot of publications sort of have a mandate. how much traffic they get. And so given hiring a young person with no experience or very little experience to just sort of write clickbait is still a thing. And it's easier to do than to hire, say, someone who's older and has lots more experience, but maybe isn't interested in, you know, writing lists. Right. (laughs) So that's been a problem. But at the same time, I also really love that the internet exists. And I think that it's helped amplify so many more styles and kinds of people. I think it's amplified a lot more diverse voices. Music criticism is no longer sort of seen as the territory of like, you know, old white guys, which is good for all of us. Right. And so I love, I love the internet. It's just, you know, it, it can be difficult to sort of have your voice heard through the din.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, it has been sort of a leveling of the playing field to some extent, which is awesome. You know, like that can't be, mm-hmm. can't be better. But like you say, you know, it's like filters have popped up on their own, you know, with people's tumblers or whatever, you know, people's fan pages, mm-hmm. because people do need help. And you can't know it all. I mean, I feel like I talk about this a lot because it's like been blowing my mind. But like when I started listening to music in the early 80s, the history of rock music was like, less than 20 years old, you know, like since the Beatles, you know, that particular type. I mean, obviously there was rock before that, but, you know, Mm -hmm. since the Beatles, there was like, you know, less than 20 years of rock. And now, where are we? 40, 50 years. I can't even, I don't know. But it's like, there's so much music out there and there are more albums released every year. It just grows exponentially to the point where I don't think any of us at this point can have a complete handle on everything that's out there.
0: I mean, absolutely. And I think that's where you get this idea of consensus albums where critics will all sort of praise the same album. And often it's because it is a very wonderful album, such as Lemonade that changed right. culture. But it also creates this sort of vacuum where smaller artists, smaller labels maybe don't get as much bandwidth because. Everyone wants to talk about and write about Lemonade and, you know, everyone wants to read about it, but it's harder to get people to read what you write about, you know, rando indie band from like three blocks away or whatever. (laughs) But I guess that's always sort of been the case. It just seems a lot more pronounced.
1: Well, what I was going to ask you about also is you do teach music criticism at NYU. So... What do you tell young people today who want to go into, you know, music journalism?
0: Well, I'm not teaching right now, but I did for three years in a row and it was increasingly difficult because, you know, I think coming into music journalism now is you have to be not just a good writer. You have to be able to be on camera and interview people on camera because video is so much a part of publishing. You have to be able to talk and understand what makes a good podcast you have to be so diverse that it's almost like music criticism has become music communications
2: mm-hmm. <laughs> and so
0: you know there's less of a market for straightforward criticism and by market I mean less people who are willing to pay you for it yeah so <laughs> with that yeah <laughs> so with that you can't just want to write about like what's good or bad about an album you have to be able to do the entirety of journalism. You have to be able to report a story. You have to be able to write a long form feature, know how to interview artists and know what stories to even follow. So yeah, it's <laughs> that's pretty much in a nutshell what my syllabus is about, kind of teaching people to be completely re- well-rounded. And also even just little things that maybe more seasoned writers might take for granted, like just knowing how to communicate with PR and ask for things Mm. you know that's a learned I didn't know how to do that and like I'm sure I sent way too many like all caps (laughs) exclamation point emails that are like that were like I'm excited (laughs) like right you know and like I'd still do that I guess (laughs) but never mind (laughs) yeah like you have to be more versatile now
1: yeah exactly right But I feel like that's the coolest thing. Honestly, right now, the thing I'm most excited about just across the board with regard to, you know, where we're at for any industry or all these related industries Mm
2: -hmm.
1: is that people are being crazy and taking chances. They're just doing crazy stuff. Yeah. And I love that. Yeah. Oh, here's some crazy idea. I'm just going to do it and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. It's exciting. It is. And I think you kind of have to because that's what we've discovered is, you know, it's like, it's no longer, you can't, it's not the toothpaste factory, right? You don't just go and get your job and do that job for 30 years and, you know, have a retirement and that's that. Mm -hmm. It's like, you actually have to invent yourself constantly. And you know, that makes it a lot harder for some people. I mean, musicians, Mm -hmm. I'm constantly advising young musicians. It's like, yes, you have to write great music, but unfortunately you also have to be like a wild self promoter and if you can't do that, you need to find somebody and get somebody on your team who can, you know, and who can right. be flexible and adaptable and have new ideas and approach this in a right. different way. So, you know, it's harder, but it's also kind of more fun. Yeah,
2: <laughs> it's
0: it's definitely more fun. And it's like, also, I think even with new music, and it's all sort of the same sort of, I guess, storytelling. Like, I don't know, now I'm feeling lofty about this idea that, you know, you have to, people want to hear stories and want to have an arc of your, or know that you have
1: an interesting, I don't know, Never mind.
0: <laughs> this is a very half big thought.
1: No, but you're right about stories. I mean, we talk about that all the time. It's like, you know, if you just got up on stage in your jeans and play four songs or whatever, and your mom's like, hey, that's great. There's no, there's no story there. You know, it's like you are one of yeah. a million other bands. So it's like, you have to create something you have to make there be something interesting about your band even if there isn't you Mm -hmm. know what I mean (laughs) like find an angle yeah. yeah exactly right
0: I don't know I think audiences are getting much savvier and more interesting as well which is maybe creating this opening for creative people to do wild stuff
1: well, I won't take up any more of your time. Julianne escobedo Shepherd is our guest. And Julianne, thank you so much for being with us today on The Future of What.
0: That was great. Thank you.
1: Side Glory by Marnie Stern. Support for The Future of What comes from Merch Table. Kill Rockstars has partnered with Merch Table for almost six years now, and they've come through for us in a lot of ways. Like when the comedian Kurt Brownoler wanted a face towel with his face on it. Merch Table found a way to make this, and it's been one of our most popular items in our mail order store. KRS loves Merch Table. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Bob Ham of Paste.com. Welcome to the Future of What?
5: Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad you're here. Me too.
1: So the episode that we're doing today is about music critics. Okay. Music criticism. You know, is it still relevant in the world given the nature of the internet and the nature of the music business? And so we've asked a bunch of people, but we wanted your opinion too because you're our local, local hero having not only been a music critic here for years, but now actually you just became the music editor at Paste magazine, is yeah, that correct?
5: One of the music editors, yeah, just handling <laughs> handling the record reviews section. So yeah. So have, in
1: charge of the important part.
5: Yes. What we're discussing today. <laughs> <Exactly>. Yeah.
1: <laughs> awesome. So tell me, in all your long years, I mean, first of all, how did you get into music criticism in the first place?
5: That's a really good question. It's something I think I always wanted to do growing up through like junior high and high school. I was a big obsessive reader of magazines like Spin and Rolling Stone and when I could find Maximum Rock and Roll, I would dig into that as well. So yeah, it's something I've always wanted to do, but I, I started small, obviously writing for writing a couple of music review things for my local high school paper and then sort of building from there, just, you know grabbing what little piece of real estate I could and whatever publication would have me. And so it's been a long process. But yeah.
1: So tell me your theory of rock criticism or or music criticism in general. Like, what do you think is the purpose and why do you think it's important?
5: Well, for me, you know, like I was saying, you know, music magazines, when I was growing up in the the pre-broadband internet age, they were my lifeline to what music was. You know, I didn't I lived in a lot of small towns. We were just talking about that. And, and, you know, there weren't very many like college radio stations or anything like that around. There wasn't anything like that. And so I had to grasp whatever information I could about music. And that was from music criticism and, and, and music magazines. And that was very important to me. And that, that opened me up to a whole world of stuff that I was unaware of. And these days, it's a really thin needle to thread, I think, is the best way I can think of it. I think that a lot of people look at music criticism now to sort of back up their biases about a band or a record. You know, they already know, either they already know in their head that they're going to like this record or they're going to hate this record. And so they read these things to either have that love of this record justified and feel that, you know, okay, here's someone that agrees with me. Or if the reviewer doesn't like the record, then, you know, they're going to get upset about it. Or the opposite, you know, that if they don't like the band and someone's writing a negative review about it, then, you know, that, again, they feel a little justified for having that feeling about it. But I think it's still important. I think it's important for bands, especially, to have criticism out there of their work. I don't think it's it's a weird tightrope because you don't want bands completely relying on what critics are saying about them to you know, justify what they're doing or to, you know, rail against what they're doing, uh, if I'm making any sense here.
1: Yeah, you are. I mean, what you're saying is, is, you know, we don't, and I would say, from my position as a label person, as well, right. we don't want bands to write for critics. Exactly. You know, they don't want to. I don't want anyone writing a song because they're like, "Oh, Bob Ham's going to give this a good review." Right, right. And that's not the point. You should write <laughs> a song for yourself because you think it's good. Yeah. But it is interesting because, like you said, when I think the really important thing you said is that when a band releases an album out into the marketplace. Mm-hmm they're opening themselves up and they're that is it's you have to be conscious about that because yeah. i feel like a lot of times bands don't want to think about it like that mm-hmm. you know but it's also kind of that it's like you're you know you're putting yourself out there mm-hmm. and you know that that means some people aren't going to like what you do right but it's in a context i think the criticism part is the important part because you have to see it as part of an art form that you are an expert in right. you know you've been listening to bands for you know many many years You have a basis for your opinion. You're not just Joe Blow off the street. right? And I think that's also an important point. You know, it's like you're talking about like, I don't like this band's sound, but I recognize where they're coming from. I'm putting it in a context.
5: Exactly. And I think that there are a lot of great writers out there who are doing that. I don't think there are enough because I think there are far too many websites out there in general covering music because I think they want to all of them basically want to champion the stuff that they really like. You know, there, there isn't a lot of criticism involved in it. And any record reviews that I put in air quotes that end up on that site are just sort of tough pieces of just saying like, you know, this is a great record. Everybody go out and buy this record. That's all these record reviews are. There isn't a lot of, you know, like you're saying, contextual stuff that's just not putting it in the, you know, trajectory of this artist's career and looking at it like that or looking at, you know, the, the you know, especially like hip-hop critics, you know, they have a whole... Scene and a culture that they have to take into consideration when writing reviews of these records, and I don't think that's happening enough. I think there are a lot of places that are doing it, but I think there are as many or more places that are just, you know, blowing smoke at people's
1: I think you're totally right about that. And I remember when years ago I kind of gave up reading blog journalism when when blog journalism really right. started because I remember going to some website and it was a, a band that I was interested in, and the review was like. Oh, it's so great. And these songs are so fun. And I really like to dance to them. And the art is pretty. And I was like, what is this written by like your mom, like lead singer's mom? Like, (laughs) I was just like, this is horrible. Like, this is a waste of my time. I can't believe I just wasted 10 minutes reading this review because it's not a review. Yeah. And I think that's one of the interesting things about the internet. It's done the same thing for the publishing industry that it's done for the music industry, which has opened the floodgates and also at the same time, constricted your ability to find what you actually want because there's so much noise. Exactly. You know, and I think that's really, journalism has become so tough in the last 10 years because, you know, there are the household names, the Pace, the, you know, Spin and Rolling Stone. But right. even like Pitchfork is a really interesting animal over the last 10 years because I feel like I never understood their assignment, like how they did assignments mm-hmm. of, of records because I've had records that we've put out They've been reviewed by people in Pitchfork who mm-hmm. I thought did a fabulous job, even if they didn't like the record. Mm-hmm. but they did exactly what a critic should do. They put it in the context, they understood where it was coming from, right. But then we've had other records that were reviewed in Pitchfork where I feel like the person had never like it was in a genre that the person didn't even know and didn't care about. you know And I thought, wow, that's harsh, you know and it, because especially and the reason I'm calling out Pitchfork by name is that for a while was a very big deal. Yeah, you know, the number that you got, you know, as a review in Pitchfork right. could actually sell up records. You know, people would buy records because they're like, "Ooh, this got a, you know, eight point nine in Pitchfork, so right. it must be good."
5: So there was a piece not too long ago that was talking about just those few records that actually got a zero point zero review on Pitchfork and how huge that was for that record. That like it was. The biggest one I can think of was Travis Morrison of the Dismemberment Plan. Yeah, I was going to say he put out his yeah. first solo record and it got trashed by that yeah. publication by Pitchfork, and he ended up that ended up like you know completely derailing his solo career right out of the gate, right. and that didn't need to be the case at all. Right. So it's a weird situation. I mean, I can speak from both sides of this things, both as I've contributed to Pitchfork and done reviews for them. I only know that through my perspective, it's just you know pitching them on these reviews, pitching the reviews editors that I've worked with, and just saying like here's my perspective on this record right out of the gate. Like, you know, I feel like I have a take on this and I try to be as intelligent as possible about it. And so far that seemed to work. At the same time as now an editor at Paste, and it's only, I've only been there a short time, but, you know, I, I have been pushing people to do that to me as well because I think normally the, the process normally was like, here's three records I want to review and that's it. Like, you know, no context, no trying to, under, you know, telling me what you're going to write about. And so I'm trying to get people to do that and I'm trying to move people away from those sort of, well, I'm only going to write this thing because I like it and I'm just going to give it a positive review and that's all it's going to be. And I've had to be like push people like, no, you can actually put some critique in there of this as well. This doesn't have to be 200 words of, you know, golly, what a great job these guys did. 8.9.
1: <laughs> right, right. Well, and I'm not trying to throw the editors at Pitchfork under the bus. I think not that's a all. tough job yeah. because often I think you are just picking somebody based on, oh, they're saying, oh, I want to review this record. Yeah. You don't necessarily know if they've got the background or the experience in that genre to right. do it true justice. But I have a different question, which mm-hmm. is, have you ever read a review in your life that changed your mind about an album or or made you revisit the album?
5: Oh, that's a really good question. <laughs> I had a feeling this question was going to come up and I was trying <laughs> to come up with an answer for this. And I don't know. I think the biggest one was probably, and this is gonna this is going to out me in a really weird way, so if you remember a few years back that Lou Reed and Metallica
1: made uh-huh. a record together. Yes.
5: I didn't pay it any attention. This was like, this can't be good. But you know, reading <laughs> a review about it in The Wire, of all uh-huh. places, where they actually put it in this context that was really interesting to me. And I'm like, oh, this actually sounds like they take this in interesting ways. And they did. I mean, I think the second CD of that two CD set, again, like what hubris is that? Like releasing a two CD set in this day and age, Metallica. I thought that was an amazing piece of work and that really did change my mind about a wanting to listen to the record and then wanting to listen to it again and, and hear what this person was hearing that I might have missed.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I, I remember the first time I ever read a review of Wu-Tang. Oh, there you go. And that absolutely blew my mind because it was exactly that. It was a writer who who knew the genre really well, right. knew where those guys were coming from and knew what they were doing that was different mm-hmm. and that was, you know, hearkening back to sort of the traditional elements of the genre. And, man, when I read that review, I was just like, holy crap, this is mind-blowing. Like, I'm so mm-hmm. excited to go listen to this record now right? with this good context that I didn't really have before. Because, I mean, the thing is, it's like, I would love to say, oh, I'm a hip-hop expert. That is impossible. I am not, right? There's too you much can, out there. Because there's too much out there. You can really only be It's kind of like the Grammys. Like the Grammys only allows you to vote in like three categories or something. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, because they're like, not everyone is an expert in everything. And that's really wise. It's like, I am certainly not an expert in Latin jazz. And I'd be an idiot if I was trying to (laughs) vote in that category, you know? I mean, that would be a terrible, terrible idea. I'm just throwing that out there for, you know... Whatever. It's Next year, Grammy Foundation. Orchestral, classical, I don't know. Right,
5: right. The producers of classical records are like, I don't even exactly. really these things. I yeah. have, right. I have no <laughs> idea.
1: And I'm not in that world. Right. So it's like you got to give those worlds their due, right? Like there exactly. are people who do that for a living and they do it really well. So we have to like trust them to pick who's best in that genre, for example.
5: Yeah, yeah. And I think that's going to be where likely my job ends up being is you know taking pitches as well yes but also just like assigning things out to people knowing these are the people that know this genre or this artist well enough that they're going to do the right job for that and i think to bring pitchfork back into it i think that's something that they've been doing a lot with their sunday reviews where every sunday they put a record review up of a record that they haven't ever reviewed before like either as a reissue or or when it originally came out and you know, they're reaching out to these people who know these artists and know these genres very, very well. And it's there's been some great stuff that has come out of that. There's a review that Dorian Linsky did of a Leonard Cohen album. I wish I could remember the, the album specifically. I think it was I'm Your Man, that's the record. And his his review on it was fantastic. Just such an amazing read.
1: And that is something else that's kind of classic about good music criticism is that without, you know, to a person, great rock writers are great writers. Right. And so it's just a joy to read, you know, in addition. And that's, I think, you know, I could sit here and be like, get off my porch because I'm an old person <laughs> and be like, no, these kind of young kids today don't know how to write. And that's not true across the board, but there certainly is a lot out there where you're like, ugh, you know, yeah, and take a, an English composition class.
5: Yeah, and again, this this gets down to the glut of the internet. There's just so much space out there for people to fill with content, and 75% of the time they aren't that great of a writer. And so and it shows.
1: Yeah. But so your job at Paste is actually kind of cool because you get to sort of learn the up, up and coming crop of young writers. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's great.
5: It's been really great. There's, there's a few folks out there that are really showing me some good stuff right now. Yeah.
1: That's very cool. Yeah. And you can do it from the comfort of your own home in Portland. Absolutely. See, that's it's the, the good part about the internet, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to move to Brooklyn or wherever. No. this. Awesome. Well, Bob Ham, thanks so much. What a joy to have you on the Future of What. It's
5: oh, wonderful. Thank you for that.
1: The Game is Changing Us by Hands. You're listening to The Future of What. If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. We're excited to announce that this podcast is a member of Jabberjaw Media. Jabberjaw Media is an independent talk and entertainment podcast network. Just this week, Jabberjaw added five new podcasts to the network, including two other new music-based podcasts, Poor Taste, a cocktail-focused podcast, and Too Old to Date, a scripted comedy podcast based in New York City. These shows add to the already amazing roster of music-based shows, which have been a part of the network since its inception. Head over to JabberjawMedia.com for more information on all the shows. You're listening to The Future of What? We're talking to Ben Ratliff, former music editor of The New York Times. Ben, welcome to The Future of What? Thank you very much. So I wanted to have you on today because I'm interested in this whole about what is music criticism? What role does it play in society? Has that role changed over time? And I think obviously with the changes in technology, you'd have to say, yes, the role has has changed over time. But I'm interested, since you've been in it for such a long time, what your thoughts are on that?
6: Well, you know, I, I wrote for the Times for 20 years. And so I was in a very particular kind of place for a long time from before iTunes.
1: <laughs> right,
6: yeah. When I, when I started, people were emailing, but even that was like <laughs> some, somewhat new. Right. And so I saw a lot of changes in 20 years. And the big changes have really happened in the last five or 10. And a lot of that has to do with streaming and instant accessibility mm-hmm. of music and the idea that reviews don't necessarily matter much anymore because you really can just get the thing you know like it's not it's it's not such a big deal to go get a record and hear it yourself or hear a youtube clip from it or whatever so i'm just saying that that, that was the really big change i think for me writing about pop music and semi pop music and obscure music but just you know not classical music is this this change from A time when the critic knew things before everybody else and was kind of a consumer guide to some extent. To now when the critic has a slightly, well, greatly different role.
1: Well, exactly. And I want to unpack that a little just for a minute because you know, there's some listeners to our program that were not actually, you know, music consumers 20 years ago. Yeah. And I just wanna I just wanna highlight for a second how it how it used to be. I mean, 20 years ago you it was very similar to how you know the radio industry spent 80 years telling people that they were providing a function of promotion and that they shouldn't have to pay for music because they were actually promoting music because that was actually still true 20 years ago mm-hmm. because if you heard a song on the radio and you loved it your only option was to go to the record store and buy it that was literally it right. and it was very similar with music journalism because you know you as a music journalist i'm assuming you got records in the mail from labels <laughs> yeah. and you listen to them yeah. and then you would write about them and if, you know, you wrote a favorable review and someone read it, people would think, "Hey, I want to check that album out." And they would go and purchase it. Yeah. It's a completely different situation today when anyone can get anything they want to hear often before it's released. Yeah. You know, in digital form.
5: Yeah.
6: So I think that what music critics are doing now much more is writing about larger tendencies in music, gathering together a whole bunch of new or recent records or performances or whatever, events in music, and organizing them into an idea, a concept. Not necessarily a trend, just an idea. And then from that, anybody reading it can click on all the links and <laughs> and follow along.
1: Well, that's really interesting because those of us who are obsessed with music Seems it seems to me, you know, myself and my friends, the people I talk to, we have this weird historian aspect to our character where we Mm. are like, Oh, did you hear the new song by such and such a band? That's you know, John from such and such band, and then he was in this, and the drummer was in this band before that. And it's like we have these complex trees of how everybody fits together and, and, you know, what bands they used to be in and what scene they're from and all this stuff. Like, just yeah. just all this knowledge that I always call useless knowledge, like what's taking up most of my brain instead of anything that could be useful to me in my life. Mm-hmm. And I think that could be sort of what you're saying is that the role of music critics today is more of that historian, more of that connective tissue of the culture.
6: You're talking about a highly informed person dealing with minutiae.
2: Mm-hmm.
6: And what I'm seeing more and more is highly informed writers dealing with sort of large concepts that don't have to do so much with the the nuts and bolts of who played drums on this and who played bass on that. I think that there is a general notion that listeners at large are scared of that kind of stuff. Mm. Like they don't really want to deal with it. I do worry a little bit that people are listening less and less with their ears <laughs> or that the music per se isn't all that important. What's more important is the ideas raised by the music. I think that's always been true, but I think that right now this idea is getting a huge boost.
1: Can you give me an example of that? Like what what do you mean by the ideas?
6: When I think about some of the big sort of issue records of the year, like Say Beyonce, say Solange's. When I read about people talking about them, I read a lot about how the thing was delivered to us as consumers and how the artist sets up a kind of feedback loop with her listeners and how the record is absorbed into the culture around it and what what are the ideas being served by the records and such as, you know, like that. But not a lot about the music itself. Much less about the music itself. And I, I think what you were talking about a second ago is you're a participant in a music scene. You know, people who played drums on this and drums on that, and you know, we're in a different bands and blah blah blah. Like you're you're kind of into that. You're kind of into the working life of music. I get the sense that 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 whole topic is, is seen as extremely boring to most
1: readers. Right. Where do you see music going in the future? I mean, you know, do you think we're on this path for a while, this streaming path, this sort of internet centric, this is how people are going to do discovery, this is how people are going to do listening from, you know, from now for the foreseeable future?
6: Yeah, I guess I do. I mean, I don't I don't think that the traditional album concept or album unit or vinyl record or or whatever will just go away. But I think that, yeah, I think there's enough movement in the direction of music not having a center, particularly music coming at us in in any form with visuals on a website that can only be heard on NTS. You know, I don't know. I think that, yeah, I don't see a return to the old way. I don't see a return to the old way.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. (laughs) That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Definitely. Ben Ratliff is a journalist, a music critic, and an author of Every Song Ever. Ben, thanks so much for being with us today on The Future of What.
6: You're very welcome. Thanks for having me.
1: And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Boats, Marnie Stern, Can, and of course our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by The Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. For more info on our shows, check out our website at KillRockstars.com/slash the future of what. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McClain. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week.
2: Can I have a taste of your ice cream?